Well, good evening. It is good to be back with you all. Thank you again for allowing me to come, to be with you all, to spend time this week, and I hope teaching, edifying, strengthening the congregation here, equipping you and your own understanding of God's congregations and His church, being able to share that with others, helping you know who you are as a Christian. This is probably my favorite lesson in the whole series, because everything else hinges on this. In many ways, this is the arch, as uh, the keystone in the arch, um, is the hinge of the door. If you don't understand this, none of the other stuff really matters. In fact, I think one of the reasons there's so much confusion in the world today is because they don't understand what we're going to be considering this evening. But before we get to that, real quick, let's refresh where we've been looking at understanding Christ's church. The very first lesson, we sought to define the word church, or the word ecclesia, that we translate into church. Um, that it just means a group of people. It may be a religious group or not, depending on the context. Maybe organized or not, also depends on the context. But when we talk about God's church, there is some organization to it. There is definitely a religious nature to that. And that the New Testament talks about God's church or Christ's church in these two senses, referring to the one body of the saved as well as local churches. Then the second lesson, we sought to understand some of the distinctions as well as the relationship between that local congregation or congregations, really, and the universal church. And some of the distinctions we saw is there's a difference in who founds the universal church versus the local, when they begin, who controls those roles. There's a distinction in the organization and leadership. There's a distinction in the fellowship, really being focused on fellowship with God in the universal sense and fellowship with God's people in the local sense. There's a difference in divisibility and especially a difference in death's result. And just for a moment before we continue our review, as we look at these very kind of doctrinal ideas, as we seek to understand this kind of informationally focused series, I don't want us to lose sight that this is about life and death. The reason that we have hope, the reason that any of this matters is because what Jesus did for us. The sacrifice he paid on our behalf so that we could hope to have a life eternal with God. And all of this matters because of that one truth. So let's never forget that as we look at this very informationally focused discussion. We also want to make sure that we understood how they related. You're going to see this chart every single night. So I hope you start dreaming about it. Because if, if the religious world could understand this concept, then a lot of the confusion, a lot of the disagreement, and what I would say a lot of the malpractice when it comes to following God's pattern could be rectified if we would understand this concept um, across denominations, across the uh, religious Christian community, using that in a general terminology. Because what this chart represents is how does the universal church, the one body of saved, relate to the local church? As Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians 12, you're individually members of the one body. And so we have people represented by these circles, and some of them have names in them. And there's lines drawn from those individuals to Christ representing being in that one body or not. 
And then some of those circles have gotten together and have an overlapping share and responsibility and work in God's kingdom. Um, and we call that the work in a local congregation. We're representing that in the kind of orange spaces. And so we looked at a couple examples. So you have the church in Corinth where there's a member there that Paul talks about in chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians who is having a sinful relationship with his father's wife, and Paul says to the church that you're not addressing it, and that's a problem. You need to talk to the brother. You need to make the point to the brother that he's living in sin, and because of that, he's not connected to God. And just because he's a member in Corinth doesn't mean he's going to be saved, and that's what we're really working toward. We care about people's souls, not just them being part of our local congregations. Or you have the situation in Thessalonica where they're concerned that those who have died missed the resurrection. They, they missed Jesus' return. They're going to miss out on eternal life because they're not around when Jesus is going to come back. And so Paul has to explain, well, when you die, you're not separated from the universal body. You're not separated from the group of the saved, even though you are separated from our local body. So it's true that those Christians in Thessalonica were never, no longer members of the church in Thessalonica. But Paul says you don't have to worry about them. They're still in Christ. And when Christ comes back, they're going to be raised and we're all going to go be with Christ together. You have the church in Sardis, which is kind of a strange situation because Paul, not Paul, um, uh, John is the one who writes it. Jesus is the one who gives him the vision. Uh, John uh, records what Jesus says when he says, there's a few of you who haven't soiled your garments. There's only a handful of Christians in Sardis that haven't, haven't given up their faith in God, at least in some sense. They haven't disconnected themselves from God. And so you have this congregation where most of the members are actually not in the universal body. Most of the members have been taken out of that because they're not living the way God says. And God's warning them and saying, you need to repent, you need to change, so you won't stay there permanently. So you will be reinstated into a universal body. And so tonight, I want to talk about, well, what's the purpose of the universal body then? Growing up, I had this mentality that being a Christian was kind of like getting to a plateau on a mountaintop. That when you became a Christian, you kind of surmounted the mountaintop, and now you're on this plateau, and your job is basically not to fall off the plateau. And that is not at all the way the New Testament talks about being a Christian. I just hadn't grown and matured enough to recognize that. Um, I didn't realize that God had an intention for me as an individual member of the one body. That's what I mean by purpose of the universal church. That God has a plan, has a vision for his body as a whole. But remember, we're individual members of that, meaning we're individually responsible for that purpose. That I as a Christian am supposed to be doing something. In other words, if, if salvation was the only goal of universal church... Why doesn't God just yank people up to heaven immediately after they're baptized? After he pushed them into the body, why does he leave them here and give them the opportunity to fall away if the only purpose is to just get people saved? It indicates there's something else that God had in mind. There's something else he wants to happen, something else he wants to accomplish. 
And that's what we're we'll talking about today. We won't even be talking about all of the purposes that the New Testament talks about, the Old Testament talks about for God's universal church. But I do think you'll get a pretty good summation of them as we inadvertently really kind of overview the book of Ephesians. It's not intended to be an overview of the book of Ephesians, but it becomes that because Ephesians is all about why God did what he did. So if you want to ask the question, well, why is there the universal church and why does this exist? What, what was God thinking and planning? Ephesians is a really great place to go to try to answer those questions. So the first place I want you to go to, go to is Ephesians chapter 1. I want to glance through a couple verses we just read. Verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. Now in this context, Paul says that you're being adopted. He says you're getting an inheritance, that you're being redeemed. He says that God's given the, the Holy Spirit as a pledge of that promise. There's lots of things God has done and given. In fact, in verse 3, he says all spiritual blessings are found in Christ. But why? What was God hoping to accomplish by planning this adoption from before the world began? What was he hoping to accomplish by giving an inheritance? What was he hoping to accomplish by redeeming us? So pick up in verse 6, and he says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. Verse 11, we've obtained inheritance, verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, who is given, talking about the Holy Spirit, as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now jump to chapter 2, verse 7. In verse 6, it says he raised us up with him, talking about being raised with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jump down to chapter 3 and look in verse 10. After he talks about how he was chosen, even though he didn't deserve to be this apostle, he didn't deserve to be a messenger of the gospel, a steward of the gospel, he says, Why did God do this? Verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. One more passage. Verse 21 of chapter 3. To him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So I had to summarize, if I had to summarize these passages, I would use the phrase that Paul is painting this picture that we are a conduit for the praise of God. That he creates a universal church. He plans the adoption. He redeems us from our sins. He gives us an inheritance. He, he gives the Spirit as a pledge. In chapter, in chapter 2, he's going to raise us and seat us at the right hand of Jesus, or seat us with Jesus at the right hand of God, who is where Jesus is, um, uh, so that his grace will be known. Chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10 is really humbling to me. Because do you understand what Paul tells the Ephesians? He says, the church shows off the many sides of God's wisdom. That's what manifold means, many-sided or many-faceted. The church shows off God's many sides of his wisdom. In other words, God is supposed to be able to pick me up and hold me up to the spiritual realm and say, look how wise I am. Look how smart I am. 
Look how glorious and majestic I am because of David or because of Heidi or because of Norma and Gerald or because of Mark and Zuline. He holds us up. We are his trophy case. If I'm in the universal body, if I'm one of the members of the saved, we are supposed to reflect the wisdom of God, not just in the world, but that's included, but also in the spiritual realm. This is why God has done this, to display just how wise he is. And I often fail to live up to that wisdom. To be worthy of being held up as an example of just how wise God is. And so every time I read this passage, I am humbled. That this is part of my purpose as an individual member to show off the wisdom of God. To bring glory, to, the, to, to be, to praise of his glory as he repeats himself in chapter 1. So that God can show how, how great his grace and kindness is to me and to, the, to the, my brethren who are in Christ. But another significant passage is verse 21. One of the reasons I would suggest he's talking about the universal church, in addition to the passage we looked at this morning, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Ephesians 4, 4, Ephesians chapter 2. But look at 321. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. One of the points we made this morning is that local churches begin to exist and they eventually end. The church in Ephesus doesn't exist anymore. Ephesus is a city of ruins. No one lives there. So there's no church meeting there. And same thing for the churches of Galatia and the church in Philippi and the church in, uh, in Corinth. Most of those cities are just ruins. You can go see them, but no one lives there. There's no churches assembling there. They began and they eventually ended. And this church is likely to be the same. But what he's talking about here is a church that's supposed to be bring glory to God forever and ever to all generations. And this is significant. Because in being part of the universal body and being a conduit for the praise of God, my purpose is bigger than just my local group. life is bigger than just my role here. My role in a local group matters. There are things that I want me to be doing, but that's not the entirety of my role as a Christian, as a saint. Because one day, my local group may no longer exist. We, we're a pretty small group in Sycamore, about 30. And several of our members are older. There may be a day when there's no longer a group meeting in Sycamore, depending on how things turn out. Does that mean I failed my identity and my purpose as a Christian? Not necessarily. If I was a conduit for the praise of God, then I might have been exactly what he wanted me to do. Sometimes he wants us simply to be the voice where one day they'll turn around and say, there was a prophet among them. I feel bad for Jeremiah and Ezekiel. That was their job, basically, to preach God's message and get ignored. And God says, because I'm sending you, they will not be able to say there wasn't a prophet among them. 
There wasn't someone who recognized my glory and declared my glory to them and gave them a chance to acknowledge it. They won't be able to say that. And sometimes that's our purpose as individuals of the member, as individual members of the universal body. But jump to chapter two. It's not just being a praise for God's glory. In chapter 2, verse 10, uh, very famous passages, because 8 and 9 are famous, you all say, by grace through faith, um, that often lead into lots of conversations with our other denominational friends. But verse 10 often gets ignored and forgotten, or verse 10. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. When you see, read that, think masterpiece. And not a masterpiece that's going to put in a museum and, and, and close in a, in a glass box. Think instrument that's going to be played by a master musician. A tool is intended to be used. So we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That we were saved, we were put into the universal body because God had good works he wanted us to do. There were tasks he had in mind for us to complete. There were things he wanted us to do in the world that would serve the world and do good for the world. As a master craftsman using a tool in an expert way. We are his masterpiece to do good in the world. In chapter 2, later on, he talks about us being a temple. Pick up in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, and whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God and the Spirit. This morning I made the point that there is a theme that runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation about God's presence. And how God is trying to restore fellowship of his presence with his people. It existed in the garden. It is lost because of sin. And part of the rest of the Bible story is God executing his plan to restore the opportunity to be in fellowship with him again. And so thus you have John's vision revelation where he finally you get to see God face to face. In contrast to Moses who cannot see the face of God and live. But today, you no longer have the tabernacle. You no longer have a physical temple. It is a spiritual temple made up of the members of the universal body. He says you are being built together as a dwelling of God in the spirit. Now, I'm pretty sure the congregation here um, uh, and, no, and no, one, no one who's a member of the congregation would claim that this local group is the dwelling of God in the spirit. It's entirety. We're talking about the universal church here. That all of God's people, all of those who are saved, make up these building blocks and a spiritual temple for God's spiritual dwelling. Here's another way to think about this. So the universal church is God's body. Jesus' is body. He's the head of it. So does God still work in the world? Does God's presence still exist in the world? Yes, it does. It exists in his is that not a necessary conclusion from this text? If we are the temple of God, if those who are saved make up a spiritual temple for God's spirit, then through us as those workers to do good works, 
He accomplishes good in the world. It's not saying God can't uh, work outside of us. He can do that if he wants. He's the master of the universe. But he created the universal church to be a dwelling, to be a temple for his spirit. Now, we don't have time to go into all these aspects. We'll just uh, end this point with some of these thoughts. What did you come to do with a temple? What's the point of a temple? You come to get closer to God. You come to understand God. You come to get reconciled with God. If we are supposed to play this role of a temple, are we fulfilling those pieces? We'll talk more about that in a second. But we're also not just a temple. We are children. In chapter 5, he starts off in chapter 5, verse 1, saying, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And up until verse 22, he then has three sections where he calls them to walk in love and to walk in light and to walk in wisdom. Who do children act like? Their parents, their fathers, and their mothers. And someone uh, this morning say, you can't deny who's, who's your father. Because all of your mannerisms and then the way you talk sound exactly like your dad. If I wasn't here in person, I would think it was your dad talking. That's what happens. Children imitate their parents. And we're called to be children who imitate our father in love, in light, and in wisdom. But we're not just children. The first institution God ever makes, the first kind of organized group God ever makes, is the marriage covenant, Genesis chapter 2. And he does that to then be an example, to be a lesson for us to understand our relationship to him. So in Ephesians chapter 5, he picks up in 22 and he spends a long time thinking about how marriage teaches us about our relationship to God. That the universal body, the group of the saved, is a kind of bride to Christ. Revelation takes that language and uses it several times in the last chapters of Revelation. But let me put it in these terms. Did, did you know God wants to be, he wants you to be his companion? You're not just a servant, although he uses that relationship at the end in 6, 9, 6, 8, 6, 7. He talked about masters and slaves, and that teaches us about our relationship with God. But it's not just a servant to do his will. He wants you to know him. John chapter 17, Jesus prays to God and says, This is eternal life, to know the Father and the Son whom he sent. This morning we made the point that eternal life is fellowship with God. It is a, a particular kind of relationship with God and his people. God wants you to be his companion, to be his bride, that he cherishes and loves and adores so much so that Jesus came and died to make that possible. He wants you to be his child, that he loves and admonishes and trains to be like him. He wants you to be the servant that adores the master. In the Old Testament, there was a special rule put in place for those servants who fell in love with the work of their masters and fell in love with the master's household. And they, and they didn't want to leave. They looked at their life and said, my life is wonderful here. Why would I leave? 
I realize I'm the servant and not the master, but my life is amazing. And I love my master, and I love my master's, master's household, I love his things. Why would I want to leave? And so one of the judges and one of the rulers uh, in, the, in that day was supposed to take this servant, and they would take uh, what was called an awl, basically a big piece of metal or wood, and stick it through his ear, pierce his ear, to, rep, to represent that he is a permanent servant to that master. That's what God wants us to be with him. The wife, the child, the servant who loves the master. Not just someone who obeys his will, but someone who knows him and obeys his will because of our love for him. But we're also called to be priests and monuments. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. So we're finally leaving Ephesians. Peter writing to a lot of different Christians. If you look in First uh, Peter 1, um, uh, verse 1, he writes to Christians who are in Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. He's writing to a lot of different regions. And he says in chapter 2, verse 5, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Similar language to Ephesians, being a holy temple. But he adds to it saying, You are a holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices, no longer the physical sacrifices, no longer the physical blood of goats and of the doves and of the lambs and the bulls, but a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why did God do this? What was he hoping to accomplish? What was his purpose in making us a chosen race? Royalty, not just a priesthood, a royal priesthood. You are sons and daughters of the king, a holy nation, a people that are separate, that are different from others, something for God's own possession. Have you ever felt lonely, isolated, like you didn't fit, you didn't belong anywhere? God says, I have a place for you. You can become a part of my possession. You can belong somewhere. So why did God do all of these things? So that you and I may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. He made us priests. He made us a nation. He made us his possession so that we can tell the world about how great he is. That we can shout from the rooftops his greatness and excellencies. To try to help people understand where my life used to be and how terrible it used to be and how wonderful it is in Christ and in God's kingdom as a part of God's people. There's a word we use for this. Evangelism. He did all of this so we could be evangelists. Not just your full-time ministers and preachers. Not just the elders. Not just the deacons. There's nothing we've looked at thus far that's highlighted any of those roles that exist inside local churches. We're talking about all Christians 
because we're talking about the universal body. We're talking about the one group of the saved. Many people will talk about God's plan for their life. And when they talk about that, they're often thinking about what maybe school they should go to for college. Or they're talking about what kind of job they should have. Or they're talking about maybe who they should marry. Those decisions matter. But that is not the plan God has for your life. This is the plan God has for your life. He wants you to be a conduit for his praise. He wants you to be a worker for good works. He wants you to be a priest to tell people about how great he is. He wants you to be his companion and his child. He wants you to be his monument. Go to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. I'm going to pick up in verse 21 and read into several verses of chapter 61. Chapter 61, the first several verses are actually quoted by Jesus in Luke 4. He's in Nazareth's hometown. He's in a synagogue on a Sabbath day. He reads those passages and then says, today these passages are fulfilled in your hearing. And so he takes the first part of Isaiah 61 applies it to himself. So keep that in mind as we read, picking up in verse 21. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan, the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion. Giving them a garland instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. In the ancient world and still sometimes today. When we build memorials and we build monuments, we decide to turn them into gardens. Maybe they're parks, maybe they're flower gardens, maybe they're orchards. But we do this to remember some event or some person. Throughout Old Testament history, God is constantly creating monuments. When they cross the Jordan River, he has them build a monument to remember that event. When God sends the Spirit to lead them out to, to kill the firstborns of Egypt and save Israel from the Egyptians, he creates the Passover and the Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows as a monument to remember that event. The Lord's Supper is a monument to remember what Jesus did for us. In fact, let me ask you a question. Why do you, in 21st century America, 2,000 years after Jesus lived, 3,500 years or so after Moses lived, 4,000 years after Abraham lived, know about the Yahweh of Israel? Know about Jesus from the Jewish people who lived in the first century during the Roman Empire? About these Christians who followed him and believed him to be God. Why do you and I know about that? Because God left himself a monument. And that monument told you about what God did, about what he accomplished, about what his purpose was in the world. The monument might have been your dad, might have been your mom, might have been your neighbor, might have been your coworker. 
who said, do you know God? Do you know what God has done for you? Do you know the great things he has accomplished? Here, he actually recorded it and wrote it down so we could know it even more deeply. Let's read about that together. You think about this picture of Jesus, the one who has a spirit of the Lord upon him, who's been anointed. Again, that's what Messiah and Christ means. And he's going to take these brokenhearted, and he's going to bind them up. He's going to take these, libert- uh, these captives and free them. He's going to take those who are mourned and give them garlands. He's going to take, give them gladness. Those who are weak, he's going to give them a mantle of praise. And they're going to become oaks of righteousness. An oak is not always a very pretty tree, but it is a strong tree. It is a tree that will withstand the wind and the rain and be there the next day. And why is he going to do this? So that he may be glorified. But then look in verse 4. It's my favorite verse in this chapter. Then they. Who's the they? So far, Jesus has been the one doing all the work. He's the one who's doing all the stuff. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Those broken-hearted people, those captives, those who are full of mourning and fainting, those who have been redeemed by the Spirit of the Lord, those who have been, uh, been followed this Messiah, this anointed one, and been saved by him, they are now going to be his monument builders. They're going to be a monument themselves and build his monument. What is that monument? It's the temple of the Lord. It is the one body of the saved. When, several years ago, I went down to the FG lectures, and I was talking to an old friend that I was at school with uh, about what was going on in her life and, and how things were going, and she was in a Bible study with a co-worker, and she was pretty excited about it. Otherwise, she was like, my life is pretty ordinary and nothing super exciting, but there is this Bible study going And I was really excited to hear about that. And I said, well, that's great. I'm so glad that you're doing that. And she's like, well, I, I realized one day that I couldn't really be a Christian and not try to tell people about God. She figured out but it's not just her purpose. It is the purpose of every single one of us. Now, how we have the opportunities to do that, the, the doors that may or may not be open to us, is going to be different for every person. But this is the vision God had for our life. This is what he wants us to be doing as the individual members of his one body. And the local church plays a supportive role in that. But it's not these things. And that's one of the reasons why this matters. Don't know if it's going to keep working. Stop working on me. Okay. Um, this matters because one of the reasons there's so much confusion in, uh, in the religious world. So much confusion in the religious world is because people mix up these purposes with the local church. So let's imagine this for a second. So let's imagine that the local church is the monument. If that's the case, then maybe we should build really big buildings that are beautiful and glorious and have stained glass to represent just how great God is. 
Or, or if the local church is the servant, the worker to do good works, then maybe we should be making plans and programs to serve the world and then help with all the problems that are out there. Or, or if the local church is the companion, then maybe we should spend more, uh, less time studying God's word and more time thinking about how do we have close relationship with God um, uh, and our feelings and our emotions. Do you, you begin to realize how when we mix up these ideas, when we mix up these purposes and think that these are the purposes of the local congregation, it leads to so much of the things you see out there in the religious communities. One of the reasons there is so much confusion is people don't recognize these are the purposes of the universal church, not the purposes of the local church. But it's also important because if I don't recognize this, then how can I fulfill these purposes in my life? How, how can I be these things or grow into these things if I don't even know I'm supposed to do them? That was where I was at growing up. I didn't realize that God envisioned this as a part of my life. And that's why who I marry and what job I have and, and what school I go to matter because they impact these purposes. Those aren't the vision. This is. But those details do impact how I play out in this vision, how I fulfill or fail to fulfill these purposes. And it also leads to the question, how does the local church relate to these purposes? And that's really what the, the last three lessons are going to be, trying to figure out how this fits. But I want to end with this analogy. I've debated whether to start the next lesson with this or end this lesson. But I think I want to end with this analogy. <clears throat> so... I went to school in town. I, for those who don't know, I moved here in 04 with my parents. Um, I went to eighth grade, uh, uh, eighth grade over in Las Casas, and then went to Oakland High School uh, all four years. And in schools, teachers have faculty meetings. And there's different kinds. Sometimes it's the whole school who meets, and sometimes it's just a portion of the school who meets. But the purpose of these faculty meetings is to help teachers become better teachers to help them improve in their subjects, to learn more, to, to learn new techniques and try and convey the truth that they're trying to teach their students. So I want us to imagine that there is some faculty meeting out there that the, the leaders of that faculty meeting are really, really focused on making sure they follow all the rules of the faculty meeting. So the administration has given them this agenda, and they've given them all these things they're supposed to do, like keep the minutes and review what they talked about last time. And they're really particular about making sure they follow all the rules. But some teachers look at that and like, well, I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of that. So I'm going to go find another staff, another staff meeting, another faculty meeting. And so as they're searching for another faculty meeting, they, they find another group that say, oh, yeah, we don't care about the rules. That doesn't really matter. That's not what being a teacher is really about. So we, we get together, and we just have a grand old time, and we have cake, and we have ice cream, and we just party, and it's just great. Someone else says, well, that's that, that, that's not really what I'm looking for. I'm actually really looking for a place that's going to make me feel built up and encouraged and it's going to, going to help me um, uh, feel good about being a teacher. And someone else says, you know what? You should just come to our staff meeting because you know what? We just bring the students into the staff meeting and just kind of hope they pick something up along the way. So I want to be a part of that staff meeting because they're doing my job for me. <clears throat> so here's the question. Are any of those teachers good teachers simply, only, because of the staff meeting they go to? In fact, some of those situations, they might be worse teachers for the staff meeting they go to. 
But the staff meeting was supposed to make them better teachers. And I would suggest to you that that's exactly how the local church's purposes fit with the universal church purpose. That's why I would say, if we don't understand the purpose of the universal church, what it means to be an individual saint in the one body, I can never understand what the purpose of the local church is. The local church is to be the place of muster, the place of equipment. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, Jesus gives several gifts to his people. Ephesians 4, verse 11, and he, referring to Jesus, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So while the apostles and prophets are no longer living, we do have their teaching. If you want a blessing of living in 21st century America, you have this in so many different versions, I don't even know how many versions there are. But we have their teaching easily accessible in print form, online, and we can listen to it from various audio recordings. But where are you going to find evangelists and pastors and teachers? You're going to find them in local congregations. But what is their job? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to building up the body of Christ. People often look for congregations and assemblies that are going to build them up, um, that are going to serve them, and that's backwards. It's like looking for the staff meeting that's going to make you feel better about yourself or meet your needs and not teach to be a better teacher. That's what local assemblies were designed for, and that's what we'll see in the next several lessons. But if we mix up those purposes then you get the chaos you see in the religious world. If you, if you don't understand who we are to be as individual members of the body, we will never fully comprehend what the point of this assembly and this local group will be. Because it's designed to help us go out and be what God wants us to be. So, how has your... Have you been in fulfilling your universal purpose? I know I often fail in these. And that's why I need my local brethren to help me in those things. We'll talk more about that in the lessons. But if you're not yet a part of the universal body, what's holding you back? God wants you to be his companion. He wants you to be his child. He wants you... To be a conduit for his praise. He wants to hold you up and say, look how wise I am because of my child, my servant, my individual who's part of my group that is saved. He wants that so badly. His own son gave his life to offer that to you. There is no one, there is no one in this world that loves you now. God wants to add you to his group. So if you haven't been added, what are you waiting for? If you haven't, haven't confessed Jesus as Lord, you haven't repented of the sins, you haven't been washed clean of your baptism, what's holding you back? And if you have, but you need help, guidance, there's some struggle, Satan's trying to pull you away from God, I can tell you the elders of this group want to know, 
The preachers of this group want to know. The members of this group want to know that. So they can be a place of muster and encouragement for you. So if you, need, if you have any spiritual need, please let us know as we stand.